Every year around the world, millions of Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. This year, it's probably going to feel a little different. As ancient echoes of widespread anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, and anti-Zionism seem to be resounding again in the present time, the Jewish battle for survival against the Seleucid Empire finds its eerie, parallel expression in yet another conflict between Israel and her neighbors. Our guests today are First Fruits of Zion senior educator Aaron Eby and his wife, Rachel, and they are going to tell us all about Hanukkah. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. Well, I'd love to welcome back to the podcast Aaron Eby, our senior educator here. Well, one of our senior educators. I can't say the senior educator. We're all getting older, but but Aaron's a, <laughs> but Aaron's a senior educator. Um, and, and even more especially, we have, I think for the first time, uh, Rachel Eby. So welcome to the podcast, guys. It's a great thing to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. This is fun. So before we get into any detail at all, just in case someone has turned on a piece of electronic equipment or, or left their house for the first time and just doesn't know anything, never heard the, the Adam Sandler song, tell us what are we talking about when we talk about Hanukkah? What is Hanukkah? Well, Hanukkah, okay, so if you've never even heard the concept before, Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday. It takes place in the winter, and it commemorates a miraculous victory at a time when our people were threatened with extinction more than 2,000 years ago. Uh, The holiday is eight days long, and uh, our most important custom is to light a nine-branched candelabrum. And uh, we also have special foods that we eat, songs that we sing, and so on. You know, the kind of normal things that you do on a holiday. So what does Hanukkah look like with families and kids and so forth? I mean, there's a lot of people out there who would like to dip their toes in Hanukkah. And it turns out that if you didn't grow up with it, you know, there's a lot to learn that you're not going to find maybe in a book or something. So give us a, a little still life or some living memory from you guys. What does Hanukkah look like at your house? Is it kind of like Christmas or what? Well, it's really important to note that Hanukkah is not the Jewish Christmas. It, it, there's really no parallel between the two. It's just that they happen to be around the same time in the winter that people often compare these two holidays to each other. And it's not really fair to compare them because whereas Christmas is a major holiday for Christians, Hanukkah is a relatively minor holiday in Judaism. And, you know, it's cultural pressure that's forced Hanukkah to step up its game and compete with Christmas, which is pretty ironic because one of the most important messages of Hanukkah is not to give in to pressure from the surrounding non-Jewish culture. Yeah, with kids, it's it's been kind of nice to have Hanukkah going on while the rest of the culture is observing Christmas because, you know, then we have a special thing to do in the winter Sometimes it coincides with, you know, their winter break from school. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's been interesting to see our kids have been in public school and to experience what that's like for the the broader culture to respond to our kids being a little different. 
than everyone else. The school administration and, and teachers will go out of their way to try to, you know, include Hanukkah in some of their holiday-themed stuff. Our kids always find it kind of amusing because when Passover rolls around or when Sukkot rolls around, uh, everyone's completely oblivious to it. But Hanukkah gets all this attention. You know, let's include some Hanukkah songs in our in our Christmas sing along and things like that. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah, because because Passover and Sukkot are like much much bigger deals on the Jewish calendar. Right. M- much bigger. Yeah, and Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah are gigantic in importance in the Jewish calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, Hanukkah is very minor, but you know, so it's not the same for every family. There's a variety of ways that Jews observe. And there are some Jews that choose to make Hanukkah more Christmassy, kind of lean into that, whatever. And I don't judge them or blame them for doing that. In some ways, they have to in order to kind of maintain control over keeping a Jewish atmosphere in their household when when there's so much going on. But for for our family, and I think for, for many families, Hanukkah is mellow. It's peaceful. It's understated. We decorate our house and we spend a lot of family time. We do have a party at the at our shul and everything as well. And we do give our kids gifts. We take the opportunity, but it's just generally more understated. And I think we really appreciate that feeling of just less pressure and, you know, just enjoying the spiritual beauty of the holiday. You mentioned some like traditional foods and stuff. What's, um, give me, a, give me a handle on that because I like food. So food really is this huge component of what brings the you know, warmth and beauty to the holiday. You know, we've kind of developed some of our own unique traditions as a family. And um, my, my daughter just the other day was bringing one of them up and I looked at her and I thought, I was like, that's not something that I actually grew up with, but it's something that I learned about as an adult. But for my kids, that's something they've always known. So to them, it's become this part of um, nostalgia. It's, it's pretty interesting. One of the most common or like well-known uh, traditional foods uh, here in the United States for Hanukkah is potato latkes. They're actually a relatively recent part of Hanukkah. And by recent, I mean the last 150 or 200 years in Judaism. <laughs> That's recent. But fried things have been common part of Hanukkah for a long, long time because of the miracle of the oil, which we will probably talk about later. But So it's traditional to eat things that are fried in oil. Another tradition is to eat dairy foods. An older tradition than than potato latkes is just other fried things, fried cheese pancakes and things like that. There's all sorts of, around the world, different parts of Jewish culture have all these different fried foods that maybe were part of the surrounding culture they lived in and then they got pulled into Hanukkah. It's like, oh, this is a fun thing to do at Hanukkah. So Sephardim have things like uh, bimuelos. There's different kinds. There's all kinds of different things that are called bimuelos, but the ones I'm familiar with are like this loose yeasty dough that's fried and then sprinkled with uh, sugar or drenched in like a sweet syrup. And in Israel, what's become very most popular for Hanukkah is sufganiyot, which are jelly-filled donuts. I think they came from Germany originally, but they became popular in Israel in the 1920s. Hmm. When I was growing up there, right at the beginning of the month of Kislev, in which Hanukkah falls, you start to see all the falafel places will all start um, frying donuts and having sufganiyot. Like, 
several on every block. <laughs> you can just walk down the street and buy sufganiyot. It's the pumpkin spice latte of uh, of Hanukkah. Yeah, exactly. And now it's moved into this really like gourmet sort of art to fill them with all sorts of different things and have beautiful toppings. But I'm I'm kind of still partial to the traditional jelly filled with powdered sugar sprinkle on top. Should have had some to eat before this interview, guys. I'm uh... <laughs> <laughs> making you hungry. Well, there's one other tradition that I'm sure uh, people have heard of, and it's dreidel, right? You guys do dreidel at your house? We used to do it more. I'll give you the rundown of it. It's a four-sided top, and each side has a Hebrew letter on it, and you use it to do some small stakes gambling, maybe candy or, or coins or something like that. And it's completely a game of chance, which is great for kids that are three, four, five years old. And yeah, the story behind it is that the bad guy in the Hanukkah story banned any kind of study of the Bible. And so it became an alibi. So if they caught kids studying, they'd whip out their games and start playing games of chance and uh, and say, oh, no, we weren't studying. We were doing something else. And then the guard would go, well, carry on then. So we play this game. It's fun for for real little kids. But uh um, you know, as kids get older, it gets a little, <laughs> it gets a little boring. So they try to make, you know, try to make fun of it. You spin the tops upside down and, and, and so on. Yeah. Also when you're a teenager, you can just go buy your own chocolate. Right? Yeah, exactly. Well, we've touched on the historical events that gave rise to the establishment of the holiday. And, um, since we keep having to sort of skirt over them, maybe we should dive into that now to sort of give some context to all of these traditions. So I'll just ask, why Hanukkah? What historical event does uh, does Hanukkah recollect? Well, if you go back about 160 years before Yeshua was born, it was a tumultuous time for the Jewish people that were living in Israel then. They did not have sovereignty at that time. It was occupied by an empire called the Seleucids. The Seleucids were a Hellenistic empire that originated with Alexander the Great. And Hellenism was an effort to try to unify that region culturally by imposing the Greek language and customs and religion. And this was a big region, right? This would have been like from Macedonia to to Pakistan, basically, right? Right. Yeah, everything that, that, that Alexander the Great had conquered, you know, and after he passed, it broke up into four still very large regions. The Seleucids were the region that that still govern Syria and Israel and this that whole area in the Middle East. Yeah, so they're they're imposing Greek culture and the worship of the Greek gods and everything. And so, as you can imagine, the Jewish people were overall pretty resistant to this. And you know, the emperor knew that this was going to be the case and gave him a pass for the most part. If they're going to die rather than join and unify culturally, it's probably better just to let them do it. This is the is the theory. Yeah. You got to have somebody there to 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 grow the crops and pay the taxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But eventually a, a ruler did arise whose name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and he had enough. He completely banned Judaism. He banned the worship of God, banned the study of scripture and the keeping of the commandments. He banned circumcising infants. He banned observing the biblical calendar. He converted the Holy Temple in Jerusalem into a place of idolatry, and uh, he forced the priests in the line of Aaron to desecrate themselves, and and he conscribed everyone into observing pagan rituals. And when he did this, it triggered a massive revolt. The Jewish people fought back, kind of guerrilla style, for about two years. And in the end, they defeated 
that Seleucid army, a much bigger and better equipped army, and they won their independence and it became the a Jewish kingdom. And then came the task of cleansing and rededicating the Holy Temple. Uh, the Bible commands that there's a seven-branched golden lampstand in the temple called the menorah, and it has to be lit, remain lit at all times using only pure olive oil. Well, the Seleucids had destroyed all but one jug, uh, one day's worth of holy oil, and producing more oil to that pure standard would take eight days. The priests lit the lamps anyway, using the small portion of oil they had. And we learned that the the lamps miraculously remained lit for all eight days um, until they could produce more oil. And that miracle itself of the oil lasting was taken as a sign that the military victory that they achieved was not a fluke or the result of human strength or strategy, but that, that God had intervened. And so that's where the custom of lighting the menorah comes from. Yeah, so you have like the hidden miracle of the victory over the Seleucids, which maybe could be explained by conventional or, or non-miraculous means. But then God says, I want you to know it was me. Right. Don't, don't be don't be confused. Exactly. Right. I mean, the the miracle of the oil on its own would have been kind of wouldn't wouldn't have meant much because what is it? It's energy savings. You know, it's uh, there's not a whole lot to it. So the big thing was that they were able to achieve independence and uh, freedom to worship God and to be Jews. That was the more important miracle that occurred. But yeah, it, as you said, it's uh, it, it's possible to look at that and think, oh, it's just a, it was just a fluke. It just was. Uh, it's just that they were really good fighters. It's just they were very clever and deny the divine hand that was behind it. And it's really important that we recognize the miraculous nature of it. And so the menorah ends up being a really great focal point for that. Isn't that so often how it is when we have a victory that where God is intervening and he's helping with so many things in our lives, but you know we can possibly explain it in, in another way, but he will send these things that are, are a signal to us if we're looking for it. And sometimes he's very obvious about it to show us that he is involved, that he is behind everything. You know, it's funny to me that this, and maybe you can give a brief rundown. I'm sure there's people out there thinking, okay, this this sounds like some more Old Testament kind of stuff happening, right? It's happening before the time of Yeshua. It's a miraculous event that God wrought on behalf of the uh, of the Jewish people. So how come this story didn't make it into the Bible? Yeah. Well, it did, if you're Catholic. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, there are a lot of things that have happened in Jewish history that didn't make it into the Bible. For one thing, the Bible is not just a book of all Jewish history. It's a carefully curated list of messages that God has for humanity that he you know brought to us through the prophets, through Moses and through, through the prophets. So just because something happened is not necessarily a good reason for it to be in the Bible. Second, it happened much later than the events that are in the Bible. So by the time the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, as we know it, has had been completed, um, that was still, uh, you know, a couple centuries before the the story of Hanukkah. So they wrote it down. They wrote it in Greek. There's a hesitancy, I think, on the part of the Jewish community in ancient times to really accept something that's Greek as canonical. So there are a lot of ancient Greek writings, Jewish writings in the Greek language that uh, never made it into the Bible, even though they were they were popularly read. 
eventually there was a version of the Hanukkah story that was written in Hebrew, but by the time that they had done that, it was, I think, a little bit too late. <laughs> well, that's interesting. The fact that it all got written down in Greek speaks to um, some level of success in the Hellenization project, I guess. It's true. And it, the thing is, it's not that, that Greek culture all around is invalid. It's just where does it fit into and how does it integrate properly with Judaism? Because there are all kinds of ways in which the Jewish community incorporates elements from all kinds of different cultures. And, you know, those cultures are, are, are great. But when it comes to, you know, banning and, and overriding the commandments and erasing Jewish identity, then that's that's forbidden. That's that or or worshiping uh, false gods, heaven forbid. There's a line to be drawn there. But the Greek language, you know, the sages do express some admiration of the Greek language in the Talmud, for example. The Torah itself, the five books of Moses, were translated in ancient times into Greek. And so it's considered valid to read Greek. They have a discussion that Greek is one of the, the preferred languages for studying. So that's fascinating. Yeah, it's not like we dislike Greeks or anything Greek or that Greek equals pagan in any sense. I learned today that even the word latka, so we talked about potato latkas, this is the fried potato pancakes, <laughs> that the word latka derives ultimately from Greek through Slavic languages uh, for the Greek word for oil. That was a fascinating uh, fact that I just, uh, just... Yeah, these little fried pancakes called oily things. Yeah. <laughs> I like to make a Greek salad sometimes along with our latkes. <laughs> it's a nice, refreshing balance. So um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but not all Messianic Jewish people are super into all of traditional Jewish observance. You know, they'll, they'll do some of it and they'll sort of take it or leave it. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to tell them what to do. But I do think it's fascinating that on staff we have, you know, you and Rachel and, and others as well who are, quote unquote, Orthodox Jews, integrating traditional Jewish observance into every aspect of their lives, following the commandments, you know, keeping the Sabbath in a traditional Jewish way. So um, I thought we'd take the opportunity while you're here to ask, how does an observant Jewish person celebrate Hanukkah? Like, what do you have to do? Because there's commandments around Hanukkah, right? Like, you have to do something if, if you're going to be an observant Jew to celebrate Hanukkah. Right. Of course, as you also brought up. It's not in the Bible. So uh, we have to find the biblical connection here. But uh, as I mentioned also before, Hanukkah is a minor holiday in Judaism. So it's one of the easiest to observe as a result. You know, uh, Passover is a, a lot to do. Sukkot is a lot to do. Yom Kippur uh, is a lot of effort. But Hanukkah is, is, uh, is pretty easy. It's got a biblical purpose though. And we learn from the laws of the thank offerings in the temple that there is a biblical obligation of a person to offer public thanks to God when a salvation occurs. Hmm. So you can read Psalm 107 for, for, for examples of this. So the salvation of, of Hanukkah affected the entire nation, not just an individual. In fact, actually, it really affected the entire world. But Hanukkah's purpose then is to be a public service announcement announcing and advertising this miracle of that moment in history where the Jewish people were saved. And so we do this through the symbol of the menorah, of that holy menorah in the temple had seven branches, but there actually is a commandment forbidding us from replicating temple worship outside the temple. And so the kind of menorah that we use on Hanukkah, which is called a Hanukkiah, has eight lights that represent the eight days plus one helper candle that we use to light the others. These lights can be oil lamps, they can be wax candles, 
But on the first night, we use that helper candle to light just one of the eight, and then we let it burn all the way down. We don't blow it out. And the second night, we use the helper candle to light two candles, and we just keep on increasing. And so in all, we go through 44 candles for each menorah over the course of the eight nights. And, um, you know, and we also have integrate elements of Hanukkah into our prayers in the synagogue. We add some special prayers. We sing the Hallel, which is just a set of Psalms from Psalm 113 to 118. So it's a serious time. We have some biblical obligations, even though it's not in the Bible itself, there is a definitely a biblical connection. One of the most fascinating things, actually, if you look at the passage in Leviticus 23 about the holidays and you go to the end of it, the very next thing it starts to talk about is the menorah, uh, kind of almost like a little hint about Hanukkah there implied in the Torah itself. I never put that together. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. I heard that there was a rule that you're not allowed to use the Hanukkah candles or the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah lights on the Hanukkah for any other purpose. Like you have to sort of sanctify them in, in a way to where the, you're not like using their light to read Moby Dick by or something like that. Right. You have to have other lights on and make sure that Hanukkah light is, its purpose is just to commemorate the holiday and to publicize the miracle and that's why they're placed preferably at some place where you can see them from the street either a window we have ours on tables inside our house that are by a window that faces the street you know not every house is set up like that but we've got a nice setup and um, another possible option that was very common in Israel and we have a few friends here in our community who do it this way to have their Hanukkah set in a little glass box outside their front door, the box to keep it from going out, but they can have it then outside the front door, really facing the street. It's a little more challenging here in Wisconsin where you're lighting Hanukkah candles at like zero degrees, but in Israel, it was pretty comfortable. Yeah, you put on your your snow boots and go out two feet from your front door to, to light the Yeah, you're like shuffling while you're trying to say the prayers and sing the songs as quick as you can get inside. Nice. You know, there's Christmas songs. Are there Hanukkah songs or do there need to be Hanukkah songs or how does that work? Yeah, uh, well, there are songs for all the holidays and really in Judaism, prayers are songs. So if you're going to pray, you sing your prayer. That's a very common thing for us to do. There's not Hanukkah carols. Lately, what's happened is because of Hanukkah's proximity and com- and unfair comparison to, to Christmas, there's been a whole industry of like, hey, let's get some Hanukkah carols, you know, the, <laughs> to make it uh, match. Um, it feels good that things would be would be symmetrical in that way. But we have ancient songs that are, you know, and poems that go with almost all holidays and that includes, it includes Hanukkah. One of them is called Ma'usur. That's probably the most famous. It really just go, goes through and, and reflects upon all the different victories in Jewish history and includes the victory against the Seleucids and focuses on that theme of rededicating the altar. But yeah, there are other important songs. There's Haneros Halalu that is a prayer that we say after lighting the Hanukkah, but there's some really beautiful melodies that you can sing that to. And I've heard beautiful recordings of it. And yeah. Nice. Ultimately, there are not nearly as many Hanukkah songs as there are Christmas songs. Um, But a lot of Jews did write Christmas carols, so there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all the the stuff coming on the radio. It's so funny to think about. 
So we've talked about traditional Jewish observance. Now, you are a Messianic Jewish uh, people, so you believe that Jesus or Yeshua was the Messiah of Israel. And, you know, often Messianic Jews will find a way to honor him or to, to integrate that aspect of their faith into the uh, holidays. So does how does your connection with Yeshua affect the way that you celebrate Hanukkah? You know, that's an interesting question because on a technical level, it doesn't change really at all the outward observance of Hanukkah. And that's partly because Hanukkah on its own is already very messianic. There are so many things like uh, about that in Judaism that that if you really are aware of how messianic they are in and of themselves, that's really the touching point, the place where you can really see, you know, how to integrate your discipleship to Yeshua in it. You know, this is our culture. It's our holiday. We So we celebrate it with our people just the way all other Jews do. We don't need to make a, a change to it, but it does take on special shades of meaning for us. You know, we think about our own risks of assimilation. Over the centuries, Jewish people who have followed Yeshua were told to abandon their Jewish identity, to leave it completely behind, essentially to to become Gentiles. There are many people who have Jewish ancestry that are that are in churches today and really have no connection to their Jewish identity anymore. And uh, that's tragic. And to, to this day, disciples of Yeshua are subjected to this pressure to assimilate from so many sides. So the, really the key message of Hanukkah, which is for Jews to persevere in their unique identity, is highly pertinent to Messianic communities, to Messianic Jewish families. And so we really think about that a lot during Hanukkah. Yeah, it's been a good opportunity for us to just have those conversations with our kids too. Assimilating, talking about assimilating into the into the larger secular world, but also just you know, in our very niche little community of being messianic Jews, observant messianic Jews, that's a really important message for us to have 8 days to talk to our kids about. That's great. But uh, Hanukkah has its own very messianic themes, and this is not something we have to import or add on to the holiday. I mean, you've got this is the darkest night because it's the it's you know close to the winter solstice, and it's not only that, but Hanukkah happens to fall at the uh, while the the moon is just fading and uh, it crosses over the new moon, so that the, the the sky is dark and dim, and we light these candles, and it's not the bright and flamboyant. Christmas lights. It's ironic, you know, we call it the Festival of Lights, but we've got just eight little candles that, <laughs> and our neighbors are, yeah. uh, are have the dancing Santa Clauses and stuff. But it's that little light, that little pure and holy light in the middle of darkness that increases and increases. And it speaks to the truth of Torah that's there and the the light shining from the very beginning when God said, let there be light. And that's been kind of hidden in our world that uh, we anticipate, you know, Yeshua is the light of the world. What does that even mean? It means that that uh, someday through him, we're going to really understand why God created us and we're going to bask in knowledge of him. And so Hanukkah is all about that on a very, very deep level. It's about overcoming exile. This is a time where Jewish people were in exile in their own land and they were brought into freedom. They were brought into redemption. And uh, this happened, it was temporary, but it's going to happen on a massive scale. It's going to happen to the entire world. And we're going to be brought out into freedom and, and everybody's going to know and is going to uh, acknowledge and worship the God of, the, of, of Israel. Nice. 
So you said this happened, the, the events of Hanukkah happened about 150 years before Yeshua. So in his time, it was not ancient history, but it was history. And, um, you know, we talked, I, I mentioned, you know, why, why isn't Hanukkah in the Bible? It kind of is. And maybe you'll, maybe you can mention where that is. It's in the New Testament. Correct. Yeah. Not in the Old Testament because, because it, it must have by that time, you know, the ideas and the, you know, the spiritual significance and the memory of the events themselves must have been woven into Jewish culture by the time of Yeshua pretty thoroughly. So can we imagine Jesus interfacing with Hanukkah or do we have to imagine it? Did he just do it? And we, maybe we read right over it and miss it. Yeah. You know, it's just to put it in perspective, Abraham Lincoln declared Thanksgiving to be a national holiday in the United States 160 years ago. So that's almost exactly how long Hanukkah had been a holiday by the time Yeshua was born. So you think about how important Thanksgiving is to our culture. So the victory that we celebrate on Hanukkah, you know, resulted in, as I said, an independent Jewish kingdom for a relatively brief window of time. But by the time Yeshua was born, that independent Jewish state had already collapsed and had been taken over by the Romans. So now, as you're reading the Gospels, this is, should be a really you know, a big factor in, in the context that you're seeing in it, that Yeshua's family and the whole Jewish people in that generation were in the same oppressive situation as before the victory. So Jews in Yeshua's generation looked at Hanukkah and the story of the revolt of the Maccabees for inspiration in their struggle against Rome. And so you can actually see this by the names of people in the New Testament. Oh, really? Yeah. The big heroes of Hanukkah, the leaders of the revolt, a family called the Maccabees. Their father's name was Matthew, and his leading son was Judah or Judas. And you could go through all of the names of their sons and do the same thing. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but the, the names of these Hanukkah heroes surged in popularity in the first century. For example, three of the 12 disciples are named Judas. Yeah. <laughs> so, so many that we, they have to have nicknames. Most of, of Yeshua's siblings are named after the Maccabees his own family members. You know, so this naming trend suggests that the that parents were inspired by the Hanukkah story and these revolutionary heroes, you know, they must have been telling those stories to their kids around the campfires and they hope that their children would follow in those footsteps and accomplish the same kind of revolt and redemption. So, you know, in all likelihood Yeshua grew up lighting lamps in his home during Hanukkah and and listening to stories of, of how God saved his people and, and about the miracle that took place in the temple with the menorah. It's not surprising. You, you alluded to this in John chapter 10, verse 22, it records Yeshua's visit to the temple in Jerusalem during Hanukkah. And uh, so you'll see most translations will translate it there and call it the, the Feast of Dedication. But it's really important to know that dedication is just a literal translation of the Hebrew word Hanukkah. There isn't actually a, any religious requirement to be at the temple for Hanukkah. And, you know, it was a long way from home for Yeshua. So the fact that he was there at that time shows that he considered it significant. So, yeah, I'd say that it's pretty clear that Yeshua has a relationship and observed Hanukkah along with everyone else in that period of time. Well, I think probably a lot of people listening are followers of Yeshua. And, and there's, you know, maybe someone out there has the urge, they're thinking, all right, I want to, I want to be like Jesus. I want to do everything he did. So if Hanukkah was important to him, you know, I want to give it a shot. Uh, but of course, you know, there's no, um, 
obligation within Judaism that a Gentile would celebrate Hanukkah, and and you know it might even seem a little weird. So how might a, a disciple of Yeshua um, who's not Jewish um, celebrate or observe Hanukkah in a way that is, you know, respectful to the fact that it is a Jewish tradition, but you know, following in the footsteps of the Master, so to speak. Well, let me just say it's there are really good reasons why you know followers of Yeshua who are not Jewish would feel a connection to Hanukkah. Because if you imagine an alternate history where the Battle of the Maccabees against the Seleucids had been lost, just follow the train of thought that would come from that. Any Jews who hadn't been killed in that battle would have been completely absorbed into Greek culture and religion. That ban against Judaism and the study of the Bible, the keeping of the commandments would have set in and become permanent. By the New Testament era, the Bible, the knowledge of God, that would all have become completely lost from the world. There would not be a people for the Messiah to come to. There would be no Christians. The Greek and the Roman and the Norse religions would still be dominating Europe to this day, if, if not for the actions of the Maccabees and the way that God helped them. So you can see how the victory of Hanukkah really profoundly affected the history of the entire world. Yeah. If you're thankful that you know and you worship the God of Israel, then the, the miracle of Hanukkah is your miracle. God did this on purpose, you know? He had a, he has reasons for intervening. I mean, the, the Maccabean family, the Hasmoneans, had some flaws, you know? And it wasn't on their merit. God had an important plan involved when he did this. And he did it for the, the benefit of the entire world. So that being said, it's critical for people who are not Jewish to recognize that Hanukkah and its traditions are something that are sacred to the Jewish people. It's something that's very precious to us and connected very much to the Jewish identity. So when at all possible, I'd recommend the best strategy is, is to connect with Jewish people and let them welcome you into their observance. So for example, um, there are public menorah lightings in just about every every major city. Go to them. That's a, a wonderful thing. And Gentiles are, are certainly welcome to be present at those public menorah lightings. You know, if there's a Messianic Jewish synagogue hosting Hanukkah services or parties, celebrate with them. Go uh, be a part of that. And that's, a, that's another wonderful thing. You can support the Messianic Jewish community. If you have, and this is an interesting idea, if you have friends or coworkers who are Jewish, but don't celebrate Hanukkah for whatever reason, why don't you try and, and encourage them to maybe take some even small steps in reclaiming that identity and see if you can get them to light the, the menorah, see if you can share that experience with them. But, you know, ultimately, personally, I think it's okay for a follower of Yeshua who is not Jewish to light a Hanukkah. We've got lots of friends who do this in, in, in their home. But you should be mindful of a few things if you do, you know, because remember, the Hanukkah is a signal. We talked about the, the rules involved in lighting the, the Hanukkah. It's a message. It's sending a message. That's why the, those rules are there. It's signaling something. And you want to amplify that message. You don't want to muddle it or, or drown it out. So please don't just make it up as you go. You know, if you're going to light a Hanukkah, get a proper Hanukkah. Learn the correct procedure about which candles to, to light on which night. Someone who is is not Jewish should omit the traditional blessing about being commanded to light the candles. Um, and then they should also modify the blessing that thanks God for the miracles he did for our 
fathers in those days. So you should say something to the effect of, you know, thank you, God, God, for the miracle that you did for your people Israel in those days. And just bringing off of that idea of people who are not Jewish wanting to participate in Hanukkah, just because of world events right now, one of my Jewish friends here in the neighborhood was mentioning that one of her neighbors, we've gotten a lot of just really wonderful, supportive comments from just the locals here in the town where we live. But one of her neighbors asked her, like, would it be appropriate for me to light a Hanukkah in my window this year just to show support for the Jewish people right now, given the world circumstances? I just thought that was such a sweet um, gesture to go to a Jewish person and ask, can I do this? Can I participate? It is. It's that's encouraging to see. And you mentioned, you know, current events for anyone listening to this, you know, from Mars in the year 2500. Right now, there is a war in Israel between the uh, Israel uh, and Hamas, the ruling uh, authority slash terrorist group in the uh, Gaza Strip. And these old feelings are starting to come back because when you read about what Hamas wants to do, it's sort of this like establish the caliphate and get all the Jews out of out of here or or at least, um, you know, everyone's got to be under under Sharia law and stuff, and and expel the Jewish people. And it's, it's sort of a, you know, we have the same overtones here. It seems like with the attempt to remove Jewish sovereignty over themselves in the land of Israel specifically, it sounds like an echo of these things that have happened before. So maybe you can help us um, draw some of those parallels. Well, Hanukkah is so connected to what's happening right now, and I think everybody sees that. It's uh, very easy to, to draw the connections if you're familiar with the story, because first of all, the story of Hanukkah represents ultimately the battle for Jewish survival and uh, a critical moment where the Jewish people are, are threatened with, with extinction and uh, from a power much greater than them. And it, and it teaches us that what we really need to, in order to survive is unity. It's binding together as Jews with one another and letting those, you know, the small things go by the wayside while we really focus on our, our need for one another. And it teaches us that our battles, you know, even when unfortunately we, you know, it does necessitate the involvement of swords and spears that, that does happen at times, but even those are spiritual battles and our success can only come from our father in heaven. And we've really seen that in this particular conflict, a turning to God. I'm just amazed at, at seeing like the, the one thing that soldiers on the front lines are requesting more than any other item, more than any food or any other supplies is tzitziot, the fringes. That's the thing that they want. And so people who grew up and have, have been secular their entire lives are wanting this aspect of their Jewish identity to accompany them into battle. It's such an amazing, beautiful thing. And so then you've got the ultra-Orthodox, so to speak. It's That's kind of not the right term, but the Haredi, the very, very strictly Orthodox groups in, in Israel, tying these tzitzit for the soldiers and providing that for them. And it's it's incredible. But these are spiritual battles, and we got to remember who we're fighting for and, and why. And it's a reminder that there's never been a generation when there wasn't some spiritual darkness that's attempting to, to snuff out Israel's light. There's a couple of songs that we sing that have been become very popular and, and frequently heard during this conflict. One of them is actually a Passover song. It's the song, 
called Vihisha Amda. It's a it's the the translation is something to the effect of this promise has has stood for our forefathers and for us that there's not been only one to rise up against us to, to annihilate us, but in every generation they rise up against us to annihilate us. But the Holy One, blessed is He, always rescues us from their hand, and so that's been one of the theme songs I've seen. Uh, you know, where you've got a protest and where they're saying, you know, like globalize the Intifada and from, from the river to the sea. And then there'll be a counter protest where there'll be a, co a collection of, of Jewish people that are just, just singing that song that God always rescues us in every generation from, from their hand. It's a beautiful thing. And you know, the other song that's become very, very common to sing, again, it's a prayer about the redemption of captives or the rescue of captives. You know, it happens to the Jewish community so often that is, people taken hostage and being kidnapped, that we have a prayer that we all know, a song that we all sing, that we've been singing for- the song is for hundreds of years old. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it goes, it's a very ancient song, but everybody knows it. Um, when there are hostages or ki people kidnapped, mm -hmm. we bring out the song, Achenu. The words are basically, um, our brothers, the whole house of Israel that are held captive, whether by sea or by land, may the uh, all present God uh, have compassion on them, and rescue them. Amen. Well, rather than ending on uh, on that somber note, I wonder if before we sign off here, if either of you want to relate a personal Hanukkah story, some something uh, memorable from your long history of celebrating this holiday with your family. Sure. Could tell the story about Tybee? Yeah. Okay. So... This story didn't happen on Hanukkah, but it has affected all of our Hanukkahs since. It started on a Hanukkah. I was a young woman, 18 or 19, and I didn't really know how to make latkes. And I tried, and they were kind of gray and soggy and not, not real great. And I even got some com <laughs> some comments. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, anyway, so I was at a Hanukkah party, and I tasted some latkes that were the best latkes I had ever tasted. And I asked around to find out who'd made these latkes. I found out it was this, this woman, Tybee, this older Jewish woman that I knew a little bit. Turns out she was just this amazing Messianic Jewish woman. She was a mentor to many, many people that I know. So I, I walk up to her and I ask her, Tybee, these are wonderful latkes. Can you give me the recipe? And she says, in a very Tybee-like way, no. <laughs> I am going to have to come over and show you how to make them. Oh, that's sweet. And she did. <laughs> she wasn't just saying that. She, we made a, we we set a date. This at this point, I was just dating Aaron, so we set a date. I think it was sometime in January or early February, something. We had the whole family, my whole large family there, and Aaron came over and Tybee taught me how to make her latkes. So that's just a wonderful memory. Every year when I make latkes, I feel, I think of Tybee, I feel so connected to her. And I, you know, I've modified a little bit, you know, made them my own style a little over the year, but they're basically the same thing. So if anyone writes in and asks, Rachel, can you share your <laughs> latke recipe? I'm going to have to say no. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't go and tell show everyone how to make them. So I apologize for that. But I will give you two small hints that Tybee taught me. Oh, here we go. One is 
squeeze all the liquid you possibly can out of those shredded potatoes <laughs> so that you don't end up with soggy latka batter. It will start to seep liquid anyway, but just squeeze as much as you can out. And also don't overdo the flour because it will make them more dense and heavy. So there's a couple little hints oh. that everyone can take. And there's different styles of latkes. Tybee's were more like the thicker. They have a crispy outside and like a creamy inside. They're, you know, like a half an inch thick. Oh, and fry them in enough oil. You don't want just a little smattering of oil in there. You want like a quarter inch of oil. Yeah, yeah. It's some, It's sort of like between a pan fry and a deep fry. Yeah, but there are thinner, crispier latkes. My sister-in-law likes them. She kind of smashes them down in the pan and hers are like very thin and crispy. So they're basically all that crispy outside and none of the creamy inside. And so <laughs> different people like them different ways. So uh, we like to have a variety. So that's one fun Hanukkah memory. I think back to when um, Thanksgiving and Hanukkah coincided mm -hmm. because, you know, Hanukkah is on the Jewish calendar, which does not line up perfectly with the solar calendar. So it bounces around uh, in comparison to holidays. So sometimes it lands around Christmas. Sometimes it could be as early as Thanksgiving. And and so when Thanksgiving and Hanukkah coincided, we called it Thanksgivinga. And uh, we discovered that latkes are delicious with gravy and they're delicious with cranberry, cranberry sauce. Yeah, uh, they're, oh, they're, they, they they're great. It's a great combination. I think even if it's not Thanksgiving, it's fair to maybe do a redo of the cranberries and gravy. I don't know. Oh, for sure. <laughs> no one can stop you. <laughs> no, no. This is how Hanukkah traditions are born. Of course, we have to say that the classic toppings are applesauce and sour cream. I learned something interesting just yesterday about apples and Hanukkah. I didn't know this. I learned that the Jewish Greek community had a tradition that the Maccabees ate duck and apples as a celebration after their victory. And so apples became a very big part of their Hanukkah celebration. And then, of course, in Europe, when the main uh, cooking oil was maybe duck fat, mm. Schmaltz. And because it's meat, you can't have sour cream on your latkes. That's how applesauce became a good popular topping for the latkes. So there's just so many different parts of Jewish history that interweave together to make these, these traditions that we know now. It's fascinating. Hanukkah really is a beautiful time. It's so much more understated than some other holidays, but it's got a really sweet holiness about it. And the families together, the candles being lit, and I think the simplicity of it itself really adds to the beauty of it. I know that my kids are going to to always look forward to Hanukkah, talking about the stories themselves. I think the story that's itself is really at the heart of what makes Hanukkah important. And uh, I think our kids are going to take that with them into the into the future, into generations to come. Yeah, I think for me that lighting the Hanukkah together as a family, gathering together in the evening when we, on another weekday, we might all be busy with something else, but during the week of Hanukkah, we make a point, we gather, we light our Hanukkahs together, we sing songs together, and we sit there. And the fact that it's this dark night in the middle of the winter, and our whole table is lit up with Hanukkahs the symbolism is just so obvious and it's it's such a beautiful thing. Well, this has been really educational and informative. We're going to try to get this out before Hanukkah. So 
everyone can listen to it in the the spirit of the season. Just thank you guys so much, Rachel and Aaron, for coming out to the podcast today and giving us a primer on this minor Jewish holiday. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Happy Hanukkah. Yeah, happy Hanukkah. And Merry Christmas to those who observe as well. Thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at ffoz.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. Until then, I'm Jacob Franzak. Shalom. Like the waters cover the sea